Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC, with today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Woman Warriors podcast, where we are dissecting anxiety, we're looking at the causes, we're trying to figure out why women are twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and we're providing some strategies that and, and resources to help you call a truce with your anxiety. I don't know about you, but here in Annapolis, the weather has been gray and dreary and just feels like it's taking forever for spring to get here. But as I record this, today is a beautiful spring day. The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, flowers are blooming, it finally feels like spring is here. So I am super happy about that. My guest this week is Laura Reagan, and it was really fun to interview her because she and I have been colleagues, friends. She's been a mentor. She also is a um, runs a, a trauma consultation group that I'm a part of. Um, so I have known Laura for years. So it's really fun to be able to pick her brain about trauma and attachment trauma for this episode. Laura and I worked for parallel organizations. Um, She worked for a sexual assault program here in Annapolis, and I worked for a domestic violence and sexual assault program at the local hospital. She and I also worked for that same hospital together for a period of time, and then she went off to uh, get her private practice going. And, um, she really kind of helped me when it was time when I graduated from my master's program, uh, with a degree in counseling psychology. She was really helpful, um, in guiding me towards building a private practice, encouraging me to get that off the ground, which was really amazing and what I needed to do. Um, So she's become a good friend and, as I said, mentor, and um, she knows trauma. Um, She also has this amazing uh, podcast called Therapy Chat where she talks a lot about, she has guests that talk a lot about trauma and how to help people who struggle with the after effects of trauma in adulthood. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm always open to feedback and comments and ratings and reviews on iTunes. So um, if you feel compelled or would like to do that, I always appreciate that. And I appreciate you listeners for tuning in every week. So um, I hope you enjoy the episode. So hi, everyone. This is Elizabeth Cush on the uh, Woman Warriors podcast. And today we have with us Laura Reagan, LCSWC. She has a thriving uh, private practice in Severna Park, Maryland, 
and she is also the host of Therapy Chat podcast, which I'm a big fan of, and um, I would love to talk to Laura today a little bit more about herself and her business and the clients that she sees. So Laura, if you could tell us um, a little bit about you and why you got into the work that you do. Sure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm a clinical social worker and um, I have a private practice focusing on working with people who have mainly childhood trauma. Um, I Why I got into this work, now that is a really good question. Um, but I think what really prompted me to focus on trauma in my work is that before, um, before I got my master's, I was in, as a sociology major, I was in a lot of classes on violence against women, um, violence in the world of children. And even though it was a sociology major and not clinical, I learned a lot about trauma and the effects of trauma being long lasting, you know, traumatic experiences from childhood don't just go away once they're over. They can affect us throughout the life, our mm -hmm. lifespan. So um, in, in taking those classes, you know, and I was learning about domestic violence, sexual assault, and I was like, what makes people do these things? And child abuse, like, how can this be stopped? It has to be stopped. You know, I felt like really, because I was a mother of two young kids at the time, uh -huh. I felt very passionate about that and um, worried, like something needs to happen to change this and what's the, what can be done. So in one of my classes, I learned that um, when children are abused, um, there was something about domestic violence perpetrators having frequently been um, either witnessing domestic violence in their own childhoods or having been physically abused in childhood. And that if they got help in this class, they told us that if they got help before age 13, mm -hmm. there was, um, you know, a high likelihood that they wouldn't go on to abuse in their adult relationships. And, you know, I kind of hung on to that little statistic and was like, I want to help kids who've experienced abuse so they don't go on and become perpetrators of some sort. Wow. And so I, I originally focused my um, plans for how I would practice clinically on working with children because I thought if you can intervene during childhood, then the likelihood that the person grows up to be a healthy and happy adult with positive relationships is much stronger. But um, now I work with adults who've experienced childhood abuse. Um, so it's still the effects of that childhood experience, but more with adults. I do work with some kids now, but mm -hmm. a while okay. it's with kids, but mainly adults now. Yeah. And, and what, what prompted that shift for you from working with kids to working with adults? Cause I know I sort of went through a similar experience of thinking, and I didn't actually do it, but I thought that when I started, that it, kids would be my primary focus? Well, I worked with a lot of kids and it was very rewarding. Um, you know, I actually love working with kids because they're so innocent and they're so um, 
you know, they look at the world in such a, with fresh eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that was really hard for me about working with kids is that if a kid was living in an abusive situation, they have no power to get out of that situation. And so, you know, when you're a therapist and you're working with a kid who's, you know, living in an abusive home, you can help the kid, but only so much because the abuse isn't changing. And of course we report to CPS and everything, but if the child is still in that environment, which is often the case. Um, yeah, that can be hard. Yeah. It can be really hard as a therapist to not be able to help them escape that. You're like sort of able to be a positive person in their life. And that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was hard for me, um, you know, that powerless feeling of, you know, not being able to do anything about that. And, um, so that was one of the factors, but also I think because I wanted to be doing really in-depth trauma work and, um, understanding the meaning that's been made from the experiences, kids aren't developmentally ready for that. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of shifted to working with people who were like in their thirties, forties and fifties who are saying, wow, why do I feel the way about myself that I do? I've always felt this way. It just um, really started to resonate for me. Probably some parallel process with my own growth as a person too, as I, you know, explore why I feel the way I do, you know, it became very satisfying to work with adults who wanted to do that in-depth work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, Cause I was, you know, looking over your website. And one of the things you mentioned is that sometimes a person might not recognize or identify that what they what they experienced was trauma, you know, that they'll come. And I have had that same experience with clients and not really, um, and almost having to, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but sort of educate the person educate there you go I was gonna say enlighten and that sounded stupid but whatever <laughs> but yeah educate the person about around trauma and so um why is that talk to me about that like well, why, why it's hard to recognize that for one thing in our culture trauma is still um not well understood in the general public it's not something you know our culture in general says you know, things that happen in the past or in the past, just move forward, put it behind you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's a great um, ideal. But with trauma, if it's affecting you, it's affecting you. And it's not a choice to um, just get past it, move on and put it behind you and get over it. Because you know, there's something in your brain that's happening when you've been affected by trauma that makes you feel stuck in that place. Yeah. Um, it can interrupt, inter it can interrupt development and, um, you know, trauma tends to continue showing up, even though we think we've put it behind us, it just keeps popping up in our relationships, in our trust with others and ourselves. Um, so it doesn't go away by itself, but because we don't have the language to um, really be aware of how we're affected by trauma, we think, you know, basically, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? And um, I often talk with people who will say, 
You mean even something that happened five years ago could still be affecting me? Yeah. And I'm like, five years? 55 years? Right. It could. So. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, I feel like that's, I think the hard part for a lot of people is like, well, yeah, it was so long ago. And the message of our culture is move on, you know, get over it, quit obsessing or whatever, that it just too can become so buried and just become so much a part of who you are that you don't realize how much it's impacting relationships, self-worth, all of that. Absolutely. And so, and I think another reason why we can't always identify that what we went through might've been traumatic is because whatever we went through, let's say we were sexually abused when we were five years old or witnessed domestic violence when we were nine years old or, um, molested by a neighbor at 13 or, you know, whatever age you are, the child kind of thinks that they should be able to, um, you know, know better, learn from the experience or whatever Mm -hmm. they should have, that they put themselves in that situation or it's their own fault or whatever. And so they may not tell anyone or they may tell and not be believed. So the way they, um, the child makes sense of it is, okay, you know, I'm just bad or, um, I'll just, you know, avoid situations like that or whatever. And your brain does a lot to try to protect you from the reality of what that was, that Mm -hmm. someone you trusted hurt someone or hurt you. Um, you know, for a child, that's like an earth shattering experience. If let's say your father abuses your mother and you're witnessing it. You, you depend on your father for safety. You depend on your mother for safety. If the father who you depend on for safety is hurting the mother you depend on for safety, then the father doesn't feel safe and the mother can't protect you. So, you know, as a child, how do you make sense of that? You have to find a way to live through that experience and not die just from that, like, earth shattering knowledge that the people that you depend on to keep you safe either can't protect you or aren't safe. Yeah. So your mind makes up all these ways of trying to, you know, well, you know, I'll become a firefighter or a a police officer so I can, you know, keep other people safe and things like that. There's so many things that we do in childhood and it's very unconscious. It's just a protection Right. That's what trauma does is it protects you from the awareness of how bad that really was. But then it's like at the same time, it's seeping out in other ways. So it's really confusing and overwhelming. Yeah. And I, th- I wonder, too, like how much, you know, that sense of um, like if only I had done things differently, you know, that internal self-blame impacts that adulthood, you know, like, so yes, you can go on and be a firefighter, but also just feeling as if you were, you know, truly valuable or connected to yourself in a way that feels real and true. If you're constantly feeling like this was my fault. Right. And it, you know, it's like as a child, you have like an exaggerated sense of how much control you really have in the situation. Yeah. Children are, 
innocent, they're vulnerable, they don't know about the bad things that can happen. They shouldn't know because they're children and, you know, they need protection. They should be able to count on the people they love to keep them safe. Of course, sometimes things happen that aren't abusive and it's not um, anybody's intention to not keep them safe. But for example, like if your mom died when you were eight years old, that wasn't abuse for somebody. Nobody did that to you on purpose, but you lose the, the attachment figure. Usually, you know, mm-hmm. mother is the, the first attachment figure. Yeah. And, you know, and that's just a loss that no matter how much you tell yourself, well, it's okay because my aunt was there or my grandmother took care of me. And that may have helped make it less painful, but you still had that attachment wounding from losing your mother when you needed your mother, you know, yeah. or a father or, or a sibling. Mm-hmm. So even when there's not abuse involved, it's just something that, you know, children's minds try to make themselves feel better in a child's way. And then those childlike ways of coping are still with us in adulthood because we kind of get stuck there developmentally when traumatic events occur in childhood. Well, and so you, you, you know, you mentioned an interesting point though, too, like that attachment piece. So even, you know, when there isn't like a trauma, like a loss or actual, you know, physical or sexual abuse, like if there are that sense for a child where knowing that parent is there and available emotionally, physically, um, but there isn't like outright abuse. Talk to me about that and attachment and how that might affect, uh, in particular women, but people in adulthood. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so one of the reasons why people often don't realize that they may be affected by trauma. And when I talk about trauma, I'm talking about trauma and attachment loss and attachment loss is a type of trauma too. You know, so I'm using that term trauma broadly, not to mean like being in a car accident when you're a child, but having, you know, some overwhelming experience of any kind where you could not help yourself and, you know, you were terrified. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you think about trauma in that way, um, when you think about, for example, um, let's say a mom is super depressed Mm -hmm. and she can't care for the child's needs. I mean, she, she changes the diapers and she feeds the baby and she, you know, keeps them dressed warmly enough and takes them to doctor's appointments and takes them to the dentist. But she doesn't really look at the baby. She doesn't want to hold the baby because she's so depressed herself. She can barely get out of bed. Right. And when the baby's crying, you know, and she can't soothe the baby. She just may leave them crying because she doesn't know what else to do. And she's so overwhelmed herself. Mm -hmm. So this isn't about blaming that mom. Um, but for the baby, the attachment needs of being held, being soothed, being talked to, um, you know, the mother making eye contact, taking interest in the baby, um, you know, being delighted by the baby, the interaction that the baby is trying to have with the mother through eye contact and, 
and little cooing noises and smiles and, you know, yeah, those needs um, not being met in childhood, those attachment needs, especially in, you know, the earliest years, but any time through childhood, that's a type of unmet need and attachment wound that can be impactful our whole lives. And it can help. We can begin to um, develop beliefs about ourselves. Like I don't matter. Uh, no one cares about me. Mm-hmm. I I'm invisible. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's something wrong with me that made it. So my mom couldn't attach to me. Yeah. My mom didn't love me because I was unlovable. Yeah. I'm bad. You know, those are like a baby's ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's not what an adult would, you know, if I'm crying and no one comes to, you know, soothe me and I had a secure attachment in childhood, I'm not going to think I'm unlovable. That's why no one's coming. But if you're, you know, if you're a baby and that's what happens, that's the meaning that you make from it. So that's, that meaning carries into adulthood. So when you, you know, when you feel sad, you may feel very alone and isolated and you may think no one cares and no one's ever going to come and help you. Well, and it makes it, I would think, really hard to um, feel safe and secure within relationships in adulthood if that sense of attachment with self but with others wasn't created early. Absolutely. And then in addition to the example of like being a baby and no one comes when you're crying, another way is if a mother is mother or primary caregiver is very overwhelmed with, you know, for example, maybe the family's living in poverty and the mother just can't feed everyone and can't, um, can't give the kids the attention they need. Or maybe the, um, mother has to work two jobs because she's a single mom. And so, you know, there are a lot of different caregivers who are coming in, whoever she can get to take care of the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't necessarily, maybe have the money to hire like a consistent babysitter who just is there all the time that the kids can count on. So for the kids, it's very chaotic and confusing. Um, you know, some, some of the kids in that family may feel like they need to help the mom. So they try to be really good and never make a peep and always help clean up and take care of the other siblings and just try to lessen the burden on the mom. Mm -hmm. But then that kid grows up and they, you know, they didn't really have a childhood because they were kind of being like a little, little adult. Yeah. We're supposed to be playing and, you know, learning and growing and exploring. Being a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, too, you and I have talked about, um, how also, uh, where maybe the parent wasn't given that nurturing themselves, that maybe they weren't, Um, their parents couldn't do that for them. So they just don't even have the ability, weren't taught, don't, that they themselves have had experienced attachment trauma. And so then when their own children come, you know, when they have their own kids, it's, it's, it isn't something that's just born in them because they, they didn't have it themselves. Absolutely. And so for those parents who didn't have their own, their own attachment needs weren't met in childhood. They may be very unaware of what their children's attachment needs are because they had to really kind of put up, kind of disconnect themselves from their own attachment needs. So it's like, 
I don't feel my own attachment needs because I had to kind of numb that so I could, you know, not feel the pain of how awful it is not to have those needs met. Yeah. They're needs. They're not wants, they're needs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So then as a mother, you know, when I see my children, I don't understand what they're feeling and I don't realize what they need. So I don't go to give them to meet those needs. And when they try to express them, I may feel irritated. I may want to push them away. Mm-hmm. Um, I may just be really frustrated or sad. It could be triggering for me. And I don't even know what it's bringing up because I'm so disconnected from those own, those needs in my own self. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so complicated and confusing. And, you know, for people, it sometimes just feels if they start to think about it, it's so overwhelming. They just rather not think about it. So that's one of the reasons why people just don't necessarily connect to that idea that mm-hmm. something, you know, in their childhood wasn't right. So people will often say, I don't get it. You know, I, um, I always had a roof over my head, right? clean clothes, you know, dress warm enough for the occasion. My mom always took me to the doctor. Um, we always had food on the table. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. What, you know, what are you telling me that I was missing? Well, and also the message is like, if you're complaining about it not being a good thing, then like you're ungrateful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like how I'm, I'm doing the best that I can as a, like the mom message, right? Like right. that's what know. the parents may have told them when they were growing up. Right. What's your problem? You know, you're ungrateful. You, you, yes. you have everything I provide for you. And it's like the parent is trying to give the kids what they need, but the kids are still feeling they're not getting their needs met. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not being spoiled or entitled or wanting to complain. It's really having a need that they feel wasn't met. And they're still trying to get it met by asking the parent. Mm -hmm. And so how, how does therapy help in your work? How do you help people heal those, those wounds, those deep wounds from childhood? Well, the way I practice, as you know, is trauma informed with an attachment perspective. And so, um, you know, I am aware of the ways that people feel when they had unmet attachment needs, um, how it shows up in our, ourselves in adulthood, you know, feeling worthless, um, feeling like I don't matter, no one cares about me. Yeah. And kind of like this general sense of there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, issues in relationships, issues with trust, um, body image issues, uh, substance abuse issues. Um, you know, there are so many different ways that this can show up, but there's like a pattern. And if, you know, knowing what those those symptoms look like. Um, I just help people make connections between what their childhood was like, you know, mm-hmm. not with a focus on blaming the parent or trying to, um, you know, vilify them because if the parent didn't know everyone, I believe everybody's doing the best they can. I believe that every parent, even abusive parents, they're trying to do the best they can. It's just that they don't have a lot to work with. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, as you've kind of alluded to in this interview, it's really cyclical. I mean, we repeat the patterns from generation upon generation, and we only do what we know. Right. Right. So the way I help people is um, I help them make connections between what their childhoods were like and, you know, how they feel now. And we work using um, mindfulness, using um, methods to process trauma, um, self-compassion work, um, shame work. There's a lot of shame in attachment wounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, shame is that feeling of I am bad or I'm worthless. I'm right. unlovable. Right. It's all my fault. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I usually work with people for a long time, usually one to three years or more. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't a quick fix. No, I, I don't know of a quick fix, but, um, you know, I, I use as many tools as I've been able to learn so far and I'm continually trying to learn more, but, you know, I've never found anything that's just a, a quick fix because this is something that basically attachment trauma or, or abuse trauma that happened in childhood our identities form around those experiences and our sense of who we are and what the world is like forms around those experiences. So, you know, it's like you take a child whose needs are met, their parents are attuned and attentive to their needs and a traumatic event occurs. The way they see the world is generally the world is a safe place. I matter. There are people who love me and will protect me and will help me. Even if something bad happens, I know I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah. But if if you don't have that, if you have a sense that the world is not a safe place, no one's there to help you. When you ask for help, you're not going to be believed or you're going to be dismissed. It really creates a different way of looking at the world where you feel unsafe, mistrustful, you know, that you feel like there's danger everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So living with a lot of anxiety, stress, you know, either hyper or hypo aroused. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Constant anxiety, always on guard. Yeah. Um, really not trusting anyone. And sometimes even those feelings were so, we can be so hyper vigilant and so anxious without awareness. Because yeah. we're basically like disconnected from our bodies. And so we're just sort of like staying busy, you know maybe trying to control everything all the time. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And, or worrying all the time that you're not. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it becomes that, that feeling becomes so part of who you are that it's just like, this is just me as a person. I'm hyper. That's just me or whatever. I've always been anxious. I'm just an anxious person. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So or I've always been depressed. I'm just a depressed person. And mm-hmm. I say, you know, I don't really think that like a baby comes out depressed or anxious. It's, it's something that develops, you know, when we don't get our needs met. And, and the good news is, I mean, I know I'm talking about this. It sounds kind of like dire, but the good news is that you can heal at any time. Whenever you take this on that you decide that you want to start healing from these 
experiences, whether you're 65, 75 years old mm -hmm. or you're 18, um, you know, you can heal and, and it's just astounding how much different you can feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, that I think, you know, what I've seen in my work with, well, myself, but also with clients is that that sense of connection to self, you know what I mean? To who I am as a person or, you know, that, that is such healing work. It is. And it's, it's just like, oh, there I am mm -hmm. all along. And once you feel that connection with yourself and your inner wisdom and your, you know, who you are. Yeah. That compassion and love for self. Yeah. All those questions of like, what do I want? What do I want to do? What's the meaning? What's, why am I here? Like, mm -hmm. who am I? All those questions are just, they're not questions anymore. You're just like, yeah. I like myself. Cool. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> it opens you up to be able to love other people in a, such a full and complete way that's so different. Yeah. It's not a needing them. It's just a warm love for them. So I want to read something that you wrote on your, you. it's part of your website copy. Um, yeah. It just really touched me. It says, <laughs> how much freedom creativity and deep connection would you invite into your life if you could be all of who you are like that to me just says it yeah thank you yeah yeah so I really appreciate the time you took today to spend talking to me um I feel like we could probably talk for another 30 minutes and then another 30 minutes after that but um <laughs> I'd like to be able to have you share a little bit if, if there were a resource or um, a tip that you felt like was important for um, the audience, the listeners to, um, to, to know about, what would that be? I would say if, well, uh, I can't, I was going to say that if there were one resource that I could give, it would be, but there's two. Okay. Um, <laughs> but for people who feel the way we're talking about having all this anxiety and feeling like not good enough, mm -hmm. um, book I always recommend to people is the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, and she, she really explains in that book how we stay busy to avoid feeling and you know, how we do people pleasing or, um, eating disorders and just so many things just because we feel worthless. And, um, mm. in that book is where I first learned about self-compassion, which is the other resource I would recommend. Um, Kristen Neff's book, self-compassion and her work on self-compassion. Yeah. K-R-I-S-T-I-N Neff. Um, yeah. is really, really a game changer. I mean, it's, it really changed things for me. And, um, so yeah. I guess if you could only have one resource, it would be the gifts of imperfection where you will find out about my other resources, self-compassion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's huge. And, and, and not something, you know, that whole self-compassion piece is so not what we're taught and not what we 
learn how to do as children. You know, it's like, oh, I, you should have done that better. You know what I mean? It's like allowing ourselves to be imperfect and make mistakes and be human is such an important gift. It is, and it really opens up so much more kindness towards yourself and to other people. Real kindness, not being nice so that people will like you, mm-hmm. but real kindness. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. Um, is there anything that you have coming up um, that you would like our listeners to know about? Anything new you know, in your practice or... Yeah, well, I, I don't know when this will air, but I'm doing a um, two-day Daring Way, which is the work based on Brene Brown's uh, work, her research. Um, two-day Daring Way and Equine um, workshop retreat with Charlotte Heiler Easley in Kentucky, June 1st and 2nd. That's so exciting. Yeah, so people can find out about that on my website under Retreats. Nice. Well, I can advocate and say I went to the one-day workshop here in uh, Maryland, and it was really amazing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I would encourage people to check that out. So, Well, thanks again, Laura. Um, I always enjoy talking to you, and um, I maybe will get to talk again more in the future. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, the episode with Laura. She really, um, she is a go-to when it comes to trauma. She is somebody who has helped so many people and really, really works at helping and guiding others who want to work with people who've experienced trauma as well. So that's pretty amazing too. Uh, the retreat, the two-day retreat that she mentioned will be in the show notes, uh, the link to that. I can say that I attended the one-day retreat um, last fall here in Maryland, and it was amazing. It, I think it, it changed my life. I am not a big horsey person, but I connected with the horses in a way that I really was blown away by and then the experience with Charlotte and Laura and really processing what that um, experience was like with them and the group was just so great so I would if you're even considering it a little bit I would say do it it's worth it Um, plus you get to go and be with a bunch of horses so how great is that So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoyed our chat. I hope you'll tune in next week where we are talking to uh, Maya Benatar, who is a music therapist in New York City. Um, Yeah, so that's what's coming up next. Please feel free to email me with comments or suggestions on things you'd like me to cover in future episodes. Have a great week. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on the Woman Warriors podcast, 
the show notes, the resources that were discussed, or links to the profiles of the people who were interviewed, you can find them at www.womanwarriors.com. Thank you.